Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney, along with my co-host Eric Raskin. I am Kieran Mulvaney. And Eric, my travel is all booked for Vegas at the end of the month. Uh, how about you? You got your flights booked as well? Yep, uh, all set. So excited to go to Vegas to see Al Bernstein perform his lounge act at the Tuscany on Thursday, July 27th. Can't wait. I'm really looking forward to it. Thrilled that Showtime is flying us out for this. Yeah, it's really great. I love the way that, you know, the organization supports all its staff and really is encouraging everyone to go out for for Al staying up. But are you thinking you're going to stick around after that? There's some fights on the 29th. You're going to stay around for them or are you just going to go straight back after Al's set? We'll see. I'll play it by ear. I mean, Spence versus Crawford seems half decent on paper, I suppose. But Al is the main event. Uh, Spence versus Crawford, that's that's kind of like a walkout bout. So, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll see how much energy I have left after Al's yeah. show. Fair enough. Uh, if you all are wondering, I see, I'm sure you probably wonder every time when we do our opening <laughs> band of what the hell we're talking about. Right. Um, as you'll know, if you've listened to our interviews with Al on the pod, uh, he has a sideline as a lounge singer in Las Vegas, most often at the Tuscany on Flamingo Road. And if you are in town for Crawford Spence, Next week, do pop along to the Tuscany on the Thursday of Fight Week when Al will be performing. We will be there in the audience and we will be willingly accepting any offers of free beers. <laughs> yes, I hadn't thought about that. But yes, please do uh, buy us a drink. And uh, no, I'm, I'm really looking forward to getting to see Al perform. And of Me course, too. I will I will stick around for the fights uh, that, that follow, I suppose. We might as well. <laughs> Uh, This week on the podcast, uh, something a little different in our interview segment. Um, The countdown to Spence Crawford continues with a chat with Nick Manning, the director of All Access. And he's going to take us behind the scenes of the show and particularly inside the Spence camp where he's been embedded in recent weeks. Uh, We will also cover all the news of the week, including Tyson Fury fighting not the guy you wanted him to fight. Uh, Eric will give me my next top five challenge and I will put Eric to the test in the fight game. But first... To Saturday night's Showtime Championship boxing card from the Cosmopolitan of Las Vegas, where Frank Martin put on a furious rally down the stretch to preserve his perfect record and overcome the toughest test of his career against Artem Hartunian. I told the listeners Hartunian was no joke, uh, but neither is Martin, who seemed to be letting the fight slip away through nine, but then, at Derek James's urging, had three of his best rounds to close it out. And in the 12th, Hartunian's left eye began swelling, and he took a knee with just under a minute to go, giving Martin the exclamation point he needed. Steve Weisfeld scored it 114-113, as I did, because Steve's Weisfeld score is always the correct score. <laughs> <It is. laughs> uh, but the, the other two cards were close enough, both 115-112. Unanimous decision for Martin, who improves to 18-0 with 12 KOs, while Hartunian comes up just short and drops to 12-1 with seven knockouts. Kieran, how did you score it? Did you, like me and Weisfeld, have the factually correct scorecard? Uh, how impressed were you with <laughs> Hartunian? And does Martin's stock go up after this close shave, in your opinion? I scored at 115-112, um, okay. although from the way that Steve Farhood was talking about the official cards afterwards, I might have gotten there slightly differently than, than mm. the official judges, who all seem to have been in lockstep, but um, I don't think anybody's stock declines after this. I, I think everybody's rises. Um, Hartunian, as you mentioned, for anybody who didn't listen to the podcast last week, um, entered as a blank slate, and again, if you didn't listen to us, you might have assumed he was just another B-side for into be Frank Fodder, but... Yeah, look, he greatly impressed, and I do hope we see him more, and I'm sure we will. 
we both spoke during our previews of how we were impressed with what we'd seen of, of his boxing skills. What I certainly didn't know, and I, I think probably couldn't, um, was how resilient he is. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was in real trouble in that sixth round. But to come back the way he did and take control of the next two or three rounds and really force Martin into a situation where he had to lay it all on the line over those final three rounds, uh, that was very impressive. Um, and from what I'd seen on video, I hadn't quite appreciated his ability to really come forward, to really step into his punches, to really put his opponent on on the back foot. Um, he looked to me like a very good boxer, but it, the pressure he brought here was really, I, I thought, very really interesting and really impressive. He's definitely had Frank Martin having to having to think a bit in there. Um, and also from watching the video, I had no idea of what a delightful person he appears <laughs> yes. to be as well. Um, there was really nothing to dislike i think about hartunian's first appearance on u.s soil and i I think we can guarantee that it won't be his last um if possible if it's such a thing is possible i think Derek james's stock goes up um Mm -hmm. because of the advice he was given martin in the corner um and then when that advice seemed not to be registering or martin seemed unable to 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 do what Derek was telling him to do he basically yelled at him after round nine to go and knock the dude out or he's going to be in big trouble and he went right out to try and do that, and he didn't come too far away from doing it. Um, and Martin Stock should also go up. But look, the only reason to downgrade Martin Stock is if you think he was taken to the edge by a total scrub. And if you think that that describes Hartunian, then again, you haven't been listening to the podcast. Um, <laughs> the fact of the matter is that some opponents are very good, and some fights are hard to win. And winning the fight, even if it's only close, is a real achievement. And I think that's what we saw on Saturday. Could Martin have done some things better? Sure. Could he have been more active at times? Sure. But let's give credit to Hartunian for making life difficult for him that way. Um, But let's also credit Martin for doing what he needed to do. He gutted it out against a good opponent on a tough night. And he did what we expect champions to do. He put it all on the line. He found that extra game plan and that extra gear. He asserted his class and his quality and his power down the stretch. And he took victory away from the opponent. And did his best to not leave it in judges' hands. I thought this was a quality prize fight between two very good boxers. Um, this will do Martin the world of goods. And the exposure will help Artunian immensely as well. Um, look, how about you? Where would you rank both of these fighters, frankly, uh, off of this? And any other observations yourself from these 12 rounds? Well, wherever you rank them at lightweight, You can't rank them too far apart. There obviously isn't a huge gap between Martin and Hartunian. This is such a strong division. Uh, It has star power, depth, younger guys, older guys. Um, Devin Haney is the lineal champ. Javante Davis is clearly the top contender. Lomachenko, I believe, edged Haney, so he has to be right up there. And then you have Shakur Stevenson, who doesn't have the track record yet at 135, but is obviously a supreme talent. So that's a hell of a top four. I think I'd slot Martin in right after those guys, uh, ahead of William Zapeta. And then I think I'd put Hartunian somewhere in the next group, below Zapeta, somewhere among Pitbull Cruz, George Cambosos, Jermaine Ortiz. He fits in with those guys. It's such a good division. Uh, I, I think Martin solidified his place just outside that top four with this win, and Hartunian established himself as a top 10 lightweight in defeat. This was an interesting fight scoring-wise in that there were four rounds that Martin won clearly, dominantly, Mm -hmm. like left no doubt, rounds 6, 10, 11, and 12, the 12th being 10-8, of course. The other eight rounds, 
I gave six of them to Hartunian, but I jotted down the words close round for mm. every single one of them, except the first. The first round, I thought Hartunian won just because Martin wasn't yep. doing much yet. So we end up with punch stats that very clearly favored Martin, but round by round, a fight where he needed that knockdown in the 12th to pull it out on some scorecards, mine included. And it's another example of why boxing really should adopt a more liberal use of the 10 points. It, mm. It's just silly that a coin flip type round is scored the same mm. as all those rounds where Martin had Hartunian under pressure and reeling. In the end, the right guy won on all cards. But it's just frustrating that the powers yep. that be in boxing insist on leaving the door open for more outcomes that don't quite reflect what happened in the ring, although this one fortunately did. Um, anyway, shout out to me for betting a pizza on Martin by decision at plus 200 odds. Uh, also, shout out to me for resisting betting on Hartunian to win at plus 740 odds. Uh, I was Ooh. really tempted, and it would have been a decent bet, uh, but uh, but it would have ultimately you lost. You were cursing yourself for not doing that in round nine, <laughs> were you? I absolutely wrote down at one point, I think it may have been round nine, that I was regretting not making that bet. Yep. <laughs> um, a shout out as well, uh, along the lines of what you said, uh, his stock going up. Shout out to our friend. Derek James for for yeah. saying the right things to Martin in the corner to let him know the level of urgency at various points in the fight. He told Martin that after the ninth that he needed to stop Hartunian, which wasn't quite true, but he did need to sweep the final three rounds and and his urging had the desired effect. A bit unlucky for Hartunian, by the way, the 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 way that that damage to his eye occurred in yeah. the final round certainly contributed to his struggles in round twelve and his decision to take a knee a decision that I loved as a guy who had bet on Martin by decision because it made it hard for Martin <laughs> to lose on points and it helped Hartunian drain clock and avoid getting KO'd in the final seconds there. Um, and I I'm also glad that uh, two of the judges scored it like you did and Hartunian lost by three points on those cards so that nobody can say the decision to take a knee cost him the mm -hmm. fight. That would have kind of sucked right. if it had. Um, and my final comment, in line with what you were saying, how freaking charming is Hartunian? That, that, Lovely, right? That post-fight interview. He is instantly one of my favorite fighters, and uh, yeah. Yeah, I hope he gets another Showtime date soon. Yeah. Uh, in the co-feature, Victor Postal got off to a decent start behind his jab, but it wasn't long before the much younger Elvis Rodriguez's power punches took over and propelled him to victory. Postal's left eye began swelling in the fifth. Rodriguez dropped him with a southpaw hook at the end of the sixth, and ref Celestino Ruiz called a halt just 23 seconds into round seven. And I'll give Ruiz a rare compliment. Thought it was yeah. an excellent stoppage. Um, I did too. Yeah. Rodriguez's fourth straight win moves his record to 15-1-1 and with 13 KOs, while Postal's third straight loss drops him to 31-5 and with 12 stoppages. Kieran, is this the best you've seen Elvis look yet? Who might you like to see him matched with next? And should this be the end for the 39-year-old Postal? To answer the last part first, yeah, I think we're getting there. Um, yeah. The quality of opposition to whom Postal has been losing has been sliding ever so slightly. And the manner in which he has been losing has become more emphatic. Uh, you know, it's funny. A couple of rounds in, I actually asked myself this question uh, about Postal. And at that point, I thought to myself, you know what? He's still competitive might lose to the young guys but as long as he can give a good account of himself like he's doing there's no need for him to retire but then a couple rounds later everything had really changed and as he was getting overwhelmed by someone who frankly has flattered to deceive of late I, I did think okay yeah it might well be time um the disadvantage he has of course is that no matter how well he boxes he he 
just doesn't have the power to keep people off him. Yeah. And which makes that, you know, career high stoppage of Matisse all the more impressive. But, you know, and, and Rodriguez really took advantage of that. And yeah, I do. I think it's a good question. I do think this is the best Elvis Rodriguez that we've seen when you think about the quality of opposition that he's had. Obviously, he was he was rolling guys over early on. Um, but yes. And, and I think that one defeat as I think Al alluded to during the broadcast, to Kenneth Sims Jr. has to be somewhat reassessed mm. as well, given how well our friend Kenneth Sims has been doing since then. Um, but yeah, he did run over Postol, but he also did it intelligently with good boxing. He took like a round and a half to, to dial in his punches and figure out what he could hit Postol with. And once he realized that that power jab of his could land really nicely over, over Postol's left, he started to time that and land that very well. And then he started to turn it into a bit of a hook. And then it became something of a lead right. And and then that opened things up for his left hand. But it was really that right right hand that did all the damage. And once he was dialed into it, uh, it, it Postol just couldn't get away from it. Um, I thought it was a fine performance, even if Postol is nearing the end of the road. Um, as for who to see him up against next, well, I take what you just said about 135 pounds and say the same about 140. Yeah. Uh, that, that division is stacked, especially when you look at some of the names, a couple of the names that you mentioned might be going up to 140, guys mm. like Devin Haney. Um, he's not ready for any of those big boys, uh, is Elvis. Um, the ideal scenario for him in terms of like name opponents might be somebody like Ryan Garcia, but I doubt that Garcia would have any interest in that. I don't see where the advantage is to Ryan in taking that fight. Maybe somebody like an Arnold Barboza, but that's a tough ask too. Um, perhaps someone just outside the top 10, a Richard Comey, Richardson Hitchens level guy. Mm-hmm. And then the other name I thought, let me throw this one at you as really out of left field and kind of fight where it's the risk and the reward are both pretty high for both guys. Brandon Lee, um, it would mm. be an interesting way to gauge where both men stand at this point. Um, I feel like we feel that Brandon needs to do something to shake things up a little yes. bit to get his mojo back. A, a win against Elvis Rodriguez would do that, and it would be no, by no means guaranteed. Uh, similarly, Rodriguez couldn't necessarily guarantee overwhelming Brandon Lee either. I think probably for both guys the risk would outweigh the reward considerably and we wouldn't see it but it's a makeable fight and i wouldn't mind seeing that yeah i like that idea a lot uh gordon hall i know you're listening uh <laughs> that's like one op- worth opening up the showbox uh, uh checkbook a little bit for i think maybe as like a, a super showbox fight or like a yeah. great pay-per-view opener kind of fight or something like that i really like that a lot and yeah as you were saying brandon lee is He's kind of stagnated a little bit. That's the kind of fight that really tells us where both guys stand. I'm not sure if it makes perfect sense for them as a fight fan. It makes perfect sense for us. Exactly. Um, The opening bout was originally not supposed to be part of the broadcast, but as we'll discuss in more depth later in the podcast, uh, Nonito Donaire versus Alexandro Santiago was moved off the card, and unbeaten welterweight prospect Freudis Rojas Jr. got a much bigger audience for his lopsided seventh-round TKO win over tough but overmatched Diego Santiago Santiago Sanchez. Um, Sanchez, as you and I were both choking over DMs, is allegedly 23. <laughs> yeah. Well, looks double that, at least. Uh, for, he falls to 19 and 3, while Rojas moves to 11 and 0 with all 11 wins by KO. But it took him a while to get the stoppage. He never knocked Sanchez down or visibly hurt him. 
this was one of those situations where I really liked the corner. Like so often corners are too brave. Um, and the corner didn't even wait uh, to get into the do we need to be brave territory. They right. told they told their guy that he needed to do something. And when they didn't, he pulled him. Uh, so good luck. So, you know, uh, praise to them for that. But yeah. anyway, what do you think? based on these 19 minutes of action, Eric. Uh, did you see enough to tell whether Rojas is a top-tier prospect, ready for more, or should his management pump the brakes a little bit? So if you'd asked me that question after the first round, I would have said, whoa, <laughs> Rojas, this guy looks yeah. like something special. <laughs> if you'd asked me after round four or five or six, I would have actually said that maybe Rojas is kind of unlucky that this fight is getting televised, uh, that, that this mm. would have been better off TV work because the rounds were getting closer and it was looking like he wasn't going to get a stoppage. In the end, because it was stopped, I, I guess he lands somewhere in between. But I, I do lean toward pump those brakes, get, get mm. Rojas some more experience before he steps up at all. He's an interesting prospect. There's definitely some talent there, but not totally polished yet. And... A little disappointing the way he seemed to slow down after a, a big first round or two against an opponent who was there to be hit. Who, who He really just couldn't miss most of the time. Um, yeah. Now, Rojas, as you know, if you watched it, he is giant for a welterweight, six foot two. Uh, he looked about two weight divisions bigger than yeah. Sanchez. <laughs> he's tall as hell. He's a southpaw. He's going to be a handful for a lot of 147 pounders. But he sure doesn't look like the puncher that his 100% KO rate suggests. And he didn't really do anything in particular to force the stoppage. As you said, Sanchez's corner just showed a lot of mercy. So uh, Rojas gets out with the KO win. Good for him. But it was potentially on its way to being a very disappointing result had it gone the distance. So I agree that it was nice to see that from Sanchez's corner. Maybe a little bit lucky for Rojas that that, that mm. happened to mm. be the way that Sanchez's corner handled it. Um, so mm. let's update our picks competition. Uh, it was tied at 52 coming in. Of course, we had no picks on Rojas Sanchez since we didn't know a week ago that it would be part of the <laughs> broadcast. We each got one point for Rodriguez Postal, having both picked Elvis by decision. Uh, but Martin Hartunian moves me back into the lead as I had Martin by unanimous decision and you had him getting the late stoppage. So I got three points to your one point and I now lead 56-54. I tell you, there was a point there where I thought, I can't believe this. I'm getting all five points. But I didn't. I forget I forget what round you picked. Eleven, exactly. Eleven, yeah. Yeah, he, he, that was one of the rounds in which it seemed possible. But uh, yeah. no. but it wasn't. It was uh, there you go. <laughs> uh, only one other card of note from this past weekend from Detroit on the zone. A card with four ten-rounders. And all four went the distance and ended in unanimous decisions. Women's undisputed super featherweight champ Alicia Baumgartner avenged her lone career loss in the main event against Christina Linaditu. Amateur standout Andy Cruz dominated his pro debut against Juan Carlos Burgos. Heavyweight contender Jermaine Franklin handled uh, Isaac Munoz. And former podcast guest and Showbox alum Jerika O'Quinn got the win over Carlos Mujica. Eric, any quick comments on any of these bouts? So one of the scores in that O'Quinn bout was a disgrace. One judge had it a shutout. Uh, it was closer to a draw than it was to a shutout. Uh, Jerico seems to have a ways to go to, to work his way back from that uh, KO1 loss that he took on Showbox, but he did get the win here. Um, not much to say about Franklin Munoz. It was the textbook Jermaine Franklin win over a game but overmatched guy, basically. Andy Cruz, he's following the Lomachenko blueprint, turning pro in a 10-rounder against a respectable opponent. Yeah. 
Burgos isn't what he once was, but he's still never been stopped. So uh, no knock on Cruz for it going the distance. He's obviously sublimely skilled, although there's a hint of an amateur style that, that'll need to be tweaked as he works his way up. And uh, Baumgartner, this fight did what it was designed to do, which is A, delight her hometown fans, and B, show how far she's come in the last five years. Mm. You know, she and Leonardo were evenly matched five years ago. Now, they're still competitively matched, but not evenly matched. This was a clear win for, for Baumgartner. Um, and also a, a quick tip of the cap to the referee of Baumgartner, Leonardo Artu, uh, Frank Garza. He's been a top referee for some 40 years. This was his final fight. He's retiring after mm. this. So happy retirement, Frank Garza. Boxers were always in good hands when he was the third man in the mm. ring. We have a fairly light boxing weekend ahead, uh, sort of a calm before the storm of Spence Crawford week. Just a couple of minor Saturday cards on ESPN from Shawnee, Oklahoma. The main event is former lightweight champ George Cambosos versus Maxi Hughes of the UK, while the co-feature pits super prospect Keyshawn Davis against Francesco Patera. And on UFC Fight Pass, a 154-pound bout between Serhei Bohachuk and Patrick Alati. And that's about it. Uh, like I said, a light weekend. Anything interest you there, Kieran? Um, I like the look on paper of Francesca Patera as an opponent for Kishan Davis. I know very little about him, I'll be honest, but he does come in with a record of 28 and 3. And although most of the names he's faced are ones you won't recognize, he did hand a first loss to Lewis Ritson. He beat Samuel Molina, who's also been in with uh, Artem Hartunian. So he's been around that level of opposition, which means he's a perfectly serviceable opponent for a young guy who though extraordinarily talented, is just 8-0 and in need of rounds. Um, kind of like a sideways move from Davis's last opponent, Anthony Yigit. Um, I like the co- that co-main maybe a bit more than the main event, but mm. that's kind of interesting too. Maxi Hughes is on a good run, and while Cambosis will enter as the favorite, this isn't, I think, the kind of easy confidence builder you might expect for someone who was basically just shut out twice in a row. Um and Boacek and Alotti is also a pretty decent scrap. Look, I'm not going to go out of my way to watch any of them, I'll be honest right. with you. But they are all perfectly serviceable matchups. And if I find myself uh, in front of the TV or a device watching them, uh, I'll be interested. All right. Okay, here we go. Knuckles crack. It is time for the fight <laughs> game. And this time I will eschew the usual caveats and expectation setting. We'll just get into it. Okay. Uh, you might get it in one, you might get it in five. In fact, forget what I just said. This one's easy, and if you don't get it in three or fewer, you're a failure. So no pleasure. Okay. All right. All right. Here we go. Here we go. This Ring Magazine Fight of the Year wasn't quite the shortest fight to earn that accolade, but it was surely the most one-sided. Hmm. Okay. So I assume that the shortest fight ever to be named Fight of the Year would be Hagler Hearns. Um, you don't have to tell me if that's right or wrong, but that's where my mind is going. So this was... Took more than three rounds. Um, you said was the most one-sided fight, uh, you presume, yeah. to be named fight of mm. the year. Um, hmm. So I'm trying to think back if there are, like, is, are some old... So I'm assuming that by saying it was not the shortest, you're sort of implying it was close to the shortest. It was fairly Correct. short. Okay. Yes. So we're talking probably somewhere between, uh, I guess, a KO3 that <laughs> took more than eight minutes, uh, like ended around the end of the third is possible, but probably more like KO4, 5, 6, somewhere in that range is where my mind is going. 
Um, some of the fights that ended in that range that were fight of the year, we would not call Marquez Pacquiao for one-sided. Um, I feel like maybe it was... Uh, like, there were also the KO6s in the Zale Graziano fights, but those were not one-sided. I'm trying to think of one that was kind of one-sided, like Foreman Lyles. I don't think I would call one-sided. I'm Boy, how could a fight be really one- somewhat one-sided and be the fight of the year? What am I not thinking of? Perhaps someone in the audience is now screaming at me. Maybe not. I'm not sure. I don't know if this was fight of the year, and I don't know if I'd call it one-sided. And I don't even know if it was longer than Hagler Hearns, but just to get a guess out there, I'll say the uh, Sugar Ray Robinson-Rocky Graziano fight, was, which I believe was also a KO3. Mm. That's probably not the answer, but I just have to get a guess out there and move on. Right. It is not. Okay. <laughs> um, I am going to be nice and say, you know how we always talk about how we can sometimes very early on get stuck in a particular thing and never shake that off? Uh-huh. I'll just say that. Okay. Okay. I need to sort of reset a bit here. Okay. Give me the second clue and I'll figure out right. what kind of resetting yeah. I'm doing. Yeah. In hindsight, the second clue is completely helpless. Useless. <laughs> but um, it, it, Helpless uh, is me. Mark, cl- the clue is useless. Right. I'm helpless. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Uh, this marked the first of four times in five years that the winner was in the fight of the year. Two he won, two he lost. The two that he won featured a total of 10 knockdowns. The two he lost featured a total of two. Hmm. Okay. So who was in a lot of fights of the year? There's like Carmen Basilio. Um... Who I don't imagine his loss in on the amazing left hook by Sugar Ray Robinson in round five was the fight of the year, but maybe it was. I may come back to that as my guess if I can't think of anything else. Although, although you telling me I was kind of in the wrong ballpark after I just uh, <laughs> just guessed a Sugar Ray Robinson fight may uh, may lead me away from that. Um, who uh, Muhammad Ali was in a lot of fights of the year that probably. That may could he have been in four in five years? He could have been the Frazier. Yeah. How, how, what was the what was the detail on the knockdowns? Ten knockdowns in fights he won. Uh, yeah. So there were he was in four fights of the year in five years. The two that he won featured a total of ten knockdowns. The two that he lost featured a total of two. Okay. So like I'm trying to think here. Like let's say Ali Frazier won. Had a knockdown, and that was a fight he lost. Uh, probably the Rumble in the Jungle and the Thrill in Manila, but those didn't have a touch. He, he wouldn't have scored 10 knockdowns, so I don't think it's Ali. I don't think it's that little run in the 70s where he was in all those classics. Um, was Gaddy in four fights of the year in five years? But even if so, I can't imagine any of them would have been one-sided. Um... Can you tell me if I have at any point here said anything close to correct? Don't tell me what it was if I did, yes. but okay, I have had I have said something close to correct. Yes. Uh, have I said something very correct? Like should I just throw out my guess that I that I was talking about making? You could. <laughs> I guess I ought to. What <laughs> is it uh, Sugar Ray Robinson KO5 Carmen Basilio? No. 
Ah, all right. It, it wouldn't have made sense You've that really it would got be... it in for Carmen Basilio, haven't you, this week? <laughs> what, what else did I say about Carmen Basilio? <laughs> there was something earlier on about, oh. about Carmen Basilio, but yes. No, he was in a lot of the... fights of the year. Uh, he was, actually. Yes. Um, yes. <laughs> I couldn't tell you how many I don't want to say anything more because that okay. will ruin, but yes. Okay, all right. It's, it's yes. <laughs> But, that, okay. but anyway, I'm, I'm, yes, he was, but. All right. I've made my guess and it was wrong. You've made your guess and it was wrong. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I shouldn't say anything else. Okay. Uh, this might do it. Um, with the win, the victor assumed the lineal world championship uh, in his division. And plenty of people assumed he would hold on to it for a long time. But 18 months later, he had lost it. And he would have to wait a very long time before regaining it. Hmm. Eighteen months later, he lost it. Um, okay, so now it sounds like George Foreman, who was one. Although maybe I screwed myself. Okay, so maybe the thing that I screwed myself up with was thinking that Hagler Hearns was the quickest fight of the year ever. Okay. (laughs) All right. So, uh, so it actually could be one of those Foreman KO2s. He was actually in the fight of the year four times in five years. I guess maybe he was, because then it would be Foreman KO2. Joe Frazier is probably the answer. Yeah. Who would have thought that was fight of the year? But it was. You are correct. Okay. Um, correct. All right, three... now yeah, and now I see where I was where I was going down the wrong path. Um, but you're right that that th- third clue helped me out. Yeah. So what were his fights of the year? So won that one. Mm-hmm. Uh, lost to Ali the following year. Right. That was fight of the year. Right. Then Ali Frazier three was the fight of the year in '75. '76 was Ron Lyle, mm-hmm. and '77 was the loss to Jimmy Young. Oh, that was fight of the year. His loss to Jimmy yeah. Young. That I would. That I would I not have guessed. I don't know who was voting for fight of the year at that point. <laughs> right. This is all an era before anyone that uh, that I know was an editor at the Ring or working yeah. for the Ring. So um, I don't know if Nat Fleischer was still alive and in charge in the seventies or was who it Bert? I think no. It probably was before Bert. Seventies would have been before Bert took over. It was either like Nat Fleischer or Nat Lubay, maybe. Uh, who uh, was the one who was sort of involved in the whole Don King ring magazine rating scandal and all that. And so I have no idea what their process for determining fight of the year was, but clearly with something like Foreman Frazier, it, they were factoring in the magnitude of the fight, not just the action and excitement of it. Although it was, it was action packed and exciting, but as you said, very (laughs) one-sided. It was not that it's relevant. Um, by, this was by my calculation. I went through all of them to see what was the the freaking whether that was the shortest or not. I assumed it was. There is one shorter. Um, any this idea is, what it was? Yeah, Ended in the same is, round. Okay, so another. So would that? So I don't know if they were doing much fight. less one sided, but very exciting. Okay, I don't know if they were doing fight of the year this far back, but would it be Dempsey Furpo? It was. Okay, all right. And that was like the second fight of the year. Okay. All right. <laughs> so this was the next shortest ending in a two. Yeah. Yeah. I got myself all screwed up with Hagler Hearns and thus thinking it had to be like a KO4, KO5 kind of situation. Yeah. But uh, once I straightened that out, uh, I, I did it within three or less. Uh, so I have, yeah. I am not a total failure. You're not a total failure. Uh, the other two, number four, mm-hmm. uh, the country in which this fight took place has had quite a few champions to call its own. Uh, including several who were born there but represented other countries, 
but this was by a country mile the biggest fight it ever hosted mm-hmm. and that was of course it was in kingston jamaica for people right. who don't remember that mm-hmm. and number five was down goes the loser down goes the loser <laughs> down goes the loser <laughs> That is a perfect fifth clue, and uh, yes, if if uh, you know the first thing about boxing, you would get it off that fifth yeah. clue at least. So, okay. Yes. Exactly. All right. No, Good that was stuff. well done. All right. Yeah. All right. That was I'm fun. Still, Good clues. I'm still shocked that that was. I, I double-checked and triple-checked. Like, is that, <laughs> have I got that wrong? But yeah, there you go. All right. Uh, let's move on to the news, and uh, we're going to treat the news segment like a full four-fight pay-per-view card this week. Uh, that'll be a main event a co-feature, a solid mid-card attraction, and an opening (laughs) bout. Uh, The only difference is uh, we'll go from the top of the card down. Uh, And there's no question what the news main event in the boxing world was this past week. Tyson Fury is facing a fellow heavyweight champion, but it's not Oleksandr Usyk. Instead, Fury announced that he'll be fighting former UFC heavyweight champion Francis Ngannou, who did not lose his title in the ring and is widely considered the top heavyweight MMA fighter in the world. That'll be on October 28th in Saudi Arabia. They will use boxing rules, and it will reportedly be sanctioned as an official boxing match, not an exhibition, but it'll be over 10 scheduled rounds, and Fury's alphabet title will not be at stake. But the lineal title is on the line, as it always is when a champion fights in his division and it's not an exhibition. Obviously, these guys are going to make a lot of money, We know why Fury took the fight, but boxing fans who wanted to see Fury against Usyk are not happy. Uh, Kieran, how do you feel about Fury versus Ngannou? Are you pissed? Are you interested? And is Fury as much of a sure thing to win this as Mayweather was against McGregor? This is bullshit, basically. (laughs) Wow. Okay. I mean, look, no professional prize fighter is afraid of another professional prize fighter, with the possible exception of maybe uh, during peak era Mike Tyson or (laughs) Sonny Liston. But Fury is demonstrating, I think, quite clearly that he is 100% ducking Alexander Usyk. Um, He is absolutely following the Floyd playbook of extracting maximum money for minimum risks without doing what Floyd did and mostly wait until the end of his career to engage in circus acts like facing MMA fighters. I don't know if he realizes or if he cares how absolutely and utterly transparent he is. Gives him forced deadlines to Anthony Joshua to accept a deal he's just pulled out of his ass. Um, demanding massively lopsided purse splits to face Usyk. But doing nothing of the sort for Dillian White or Derek Chisora or indeed Francis Ngannou. Look, he's going to earn a shit ton of money, whoever he faces. And he knows that. And that's clearly what he cares about. And fair enough. Right? Good luck to him. But don't pretend. You're the one who's seeking the tough challenges and everybody else is the coward who's trying to get themselves out of facing you. Um, He's not the first heavyweight champion to take part in freak events. Muhammad Ali, Antonio Inoki, anybody? But, you know, Ali didn't have a clear standout opponent at the time who he hadn't faced before. And look, Fury wants attention and money. And possibly in that order, possibly not. He doesn't necessarily want a hard challenge like Usyk when he can get at least as much of the two things he craves, attention and money, by facing a guy who's never boxed in his life. I'd probably be more pissed if I wasn't already tremendously jaded by covering this sport. And if so many other great matchups weren't already happening, the fact that we're having such a fantastic year makes it somewhat easier to go, you know, screw it. Um, Look, 
I'm grateful to Fury for being so open about his mental health and making an enormous contribution to erasing the stigma surrounding it. But I don't get the impression he's a particularly likable person. And I don't think he's remotely interested in being the genuinely great heavyweight champion he could be. Uh, But I could be wrong. You know, maybe I've heard that all this talk of the Saudi Arabia mega heavyweight event has cooled a little bit. And I've heard that if it does happen, it might not be till, say, February. And maybe he knows that. And maybe he's just looking for something to get himself attention and money until that comes along. And by March, he will have faced and beaten Usyk. And I will be singing a completely different tune. But right now, it feels like he is taking a nakedly cynical money grab and basically telling boxing fans to like it or get stuffed. So I am less upset about this than you are. Uh, I'm in a bit of a TBD mode in terms of how Very well. ups- upset I'm going to prove to be. Um, this only upsets me in so much as it means we may not see Fury Usyk at all. Um I don't mind Fury making gobs of money for a crossover event that he'll win easily and that will make him a bigger mainstream star. Um, I do mind if he's choosing this as an alternative to serious fights to prove his greatness and and give his rivals a chance to prove their greatness. Um, You basically hinted at this, that at least with Mayweather McGregor, Floyd was retired and the lure of that easy money drew him back, but it was not an alternative yeah. to other fights we wanted to see him in. So, so that is where this potentially pisses me off with Fury. If he never fights Usyk, if he beats Ngannou and doesn't come back around to cleaning out the division, then yeah, this is certainly a slap in the face to serious boxing fans. But if he beats Ngannou and then fights Usyk in the spring, fine, all good. Right. And I guess that's basically what you said, but for whatever reason, I'm less fired up about it and less reaching the conclusion that this means he's ducking Usyk. Um, But maybe that is exactly what it means. And I'll, uh, you know, come back around in six months and be like, that piece of shit, Fury. I can't believe (laughs) I can't believe he fought Ngannou and then and then never defended the heavyweight title against the people that he should that he should have. But for now, I'm a little less fired up than you are on this. Okay, but we'll see. Maybe we'll completely swap positions in six months. <laughs> yeah, it would it would be quite uh, quite. If, if we're going to finally disagree about something, it also makes sense that we would kind of flip flop and agree with each yeah. other eventually. And yeah, so. <laughs> exactly. Our second news item concerns the July 29th Showtime pay per view undercard. As we noted at the top of the show, Nanito Donaire versus Alexandro Santiago moved off this past Saturday's card and made room for Rojas versus Sanchez. So here's what happened. Jesus Ramos was supposed to be on the Spence Crawford undercard against Sergio Garcia, but he suffered a hand injury. And Victor Faust had to withdraw from his heavyweight fight on that card uh, due to a back injury. So with two holes to fill, that's what she said, Donaire Santiago moves moves back two weeks from July 15th to 29th. And Garcia remains on the card, but he's now in the opening bout against undefeated Cuban Uranus Tellez. Eric, what do you think of the changes? Are you surprised that Donaire and Santiago were willing to change dates so close to peaking and making weight for July 15th? So, as much as we are fans of Jesus Ramos, trading him versus Garcia for Tellez versus Garcia, yeah. it's an even enough trade-off. Either way, it's Garcia as a gatekeeper type against an up-and-comer, the difference being it's not an up-and-comer that we have a history with. It's it's a new up-and-comer to assess. Yeah. So that's kind of a six of one, half a dozen of another situation. Uh, Donaire Santiago undoubtedly enhances this pay-per-view. 
not that the undercard ever impacts sales much. Right. But it's a well-known name. It's a future Hall of Famer added to the card in a real test. Um, the odds are close. Uh, I saw Donaire just as like a minus 160 favorite. And of course, you and I were split in uh, in our picks on this. So people who order the pay-per-view are, are getting that little bit more for their money now. Um, but as for the question about them being willing to change dates, I have no inside information. This is just me making assumptions. They have to have had their purses increased. I, Surely, yeah. Right? I can't imagine a world in which both fighters say, sure, no problem. I'm a, I'm a few days out from my fight. Let's postpone <laughs> it two weeks. What do I care? I feel safe in assuming whatever they were going to get paid for this past Saturday, they're getting paid a little more to train two extra weeks. And it'll be interesting to see if or how it affects the fight. You'll recall two weeks was the exact amount of time Bernard Hopkins versus Felix Trinidad got delayed. Uh, also, mm-hmm. midweek of the original fight week that the delay happened. And Hopkins seemed to handle the extended training camp quite well. Trinidad, we don't know for sure, but maybe he had trouble staying on point until fight night and, and avoiding peaking too soon. We'll see. Adds another little interesting wrinkle to what I already considered a highly intriguing fight. Uh, next up, Two pieces of news concerning lightweight champ Devin Haney, one where he's the central figure and one where he's the secondary figure. Haney was arrested early Thursday morning in L.A. on a charge of carrying a concealed weapon in a vehicle and released on $35,000 bail, according to TMZ Sports. Haney was not driving. His car was pulled over due to an unsafe lane change, and Haney informed the police officers there was a loaded weapon in the car, and indeed, they found a semi-automatic handgun under the driver's seat. Uh, Just prior to this, Haney was in the news because Teofimo Lopez was calling him out. Yes, that Teofimo Lopez, the one who claimed he was retired. Uh, He is not retired. He's calling out Devin Haney, and he formally told the WBO he is not vacating their belt. Uh, So, Kieran, how absolutely flabbergasted are you that Lopez is not retired? Um, More seriously, what do you think of a Lopez-Haney fight, and does Haney seem in any real legal jeopardy off this arrest that could impact his boxing plans? So, to take the legal issue first, not that I know a damn thing about such things, my guess <laughs> is the fact that he wasn't driving and that he immediately notified officers of the presence of the gun Yeah, means he might not be in too much legal jeopardy for this, but I feel more confident in that assessment if he'd been pulled over in Texas rather than California, mm-hmm. um, where the nature of you know having guns around is viewed differently his father said that the gun belonged to his licensed security and honestly i'm more interested in why exactly some of these boxes feel the need to have armed security with them at all times like that was javante davis's reasoning for why he couldn't stay with calvin ford because he had to have room for his security i don't know if they feel that they are in genuine constant mortal peril or if this is a thing that they have to do to, to be real, I, I genuinely don't understand. I, I Obviously, it's an entirely different world from the one that I'm used to, but I find that interesting. And I, and I don't know if it's a new development, um, or whether it's just specific to a couple of boxes, but I find it interesting. Um, but yes, of course, I am shocked shocked that Tiafimo Lopez isn't retired after all. Um, word on the street has been that he was just looking to clear himself of existing contractual obligations and establish his own promotional company. But um, yeah, look, Henny Lopez would be a terrific fight in principle, especially now that Tiafimo has shown that he's well and truly back on form and, and once more health, healthy. Um, I hope it does happen because after 
years of wondering if any of the four or perhaps five or six princes would ever face off. But it's starting to happen now. And I'd be very happy to see that that trend uh, continue, even if it looks as if most of it's going to be at 140 rather than 135. But so be it. Yeah. Um, Finishing the news segment with some quick undercard items. Javante Davis, the aforementioned, was released from jail Friday after being behind bars for six weeks. Top cruiserweight Jai Opatai has signed a co-promotional deal with Matron Boxing. After just one fight at lightweight, Michaela Mayer has announced she's moving up again to 140 pounds. Jared Big Baby Anderson will have a quick return to the win ring after his tough fight against Charles Martin. He takes on Andre Rudenkohn on August 26th with Bakadir Jalalov, likely in the co-feature, according to Dan Raphael of ESPN. And again, that's just never going to get old. <laughs> and on that same date, August 26th, Adam Hamed, son of Prince Nassim Hamed, is scheduled to turn pro. Anything you'd like to comment on there, Eric? Uh it's interesting how many sons of elite fighters are themselves becoming yeah. fighters these days. I saw a picture of Adam Hamed standing next to his dad, and um, I don't think Adam is a featherweight. Uh, he looked about six inches taller than his old man. Oh, okay. uh, I'll be curious to see if he can fight and to see if he's inherited any of Naz's showmanship. Um, Anderson Rodenko, solid, you know, figures to get Anderson some rounds again. And I'm, I'm just happy to see him back so soon. As I said, if he's going to retire by 27, he'd better stay busy in the ring between now and then. So that's good. Uh, and Javante, I was a little surprised to see the news. I, I figured the judge would keep him in jail till the end of the sentence, but I guess we can take this as a sign that he exhibited good behavior. We'll see where he goes from here. This seems an inflection point in Tank's life. Yeah. Either we'll yeah. look back and say, after he went to jail, he really got his shit together. Or... He's going to keep getting in trouble, and we will look back and say, what a shame. Tank never grew mm -hmm. up. He could have been great, but he blew it. I have no predictions on that front in terms of which path he's going to go down, but I, I do feel like this could be the crossroads moment for him. Mm, yeah. All right. So that was our slightly unusual news segment. Now for our slightly different interview segment. Uh, I should note that the following was recorded on Thursday before the Frank Martin fight, before episode two of All Access first aired. So if you're confused by any references to the upcoming episode two, that's why. Don't worry, you haven't missed an episode. You haven't been asleep. Uh, anyway, here is our interview with Nick Manning. This week's guest directed his first All Access in June 2021 in advance of Tank Davis versus Mario Barrios and is now, even as we speak, literally in the midst of directing his 14th, which is, of course, All Access Spence versus Crawford, episode two of which is now available on digital and streaming platforms. We welcome to the podcast the director of All Access, Nick Manning. Nick, thank you so much for putting some time aside for us and what must be a crazy busy spell for you. Yeah, thank you guys. It's uh, yeah, I'm quite literally, like you said, in the in the eye of the storm right now. <laughs> so uh, I'm I'm glad to be able to to talk about it and, and process my emotions as we go through this. <laughs> so let's start specifically with some questions about these current episodes of of All Access for Errol and Bud, and and then we'll pull back and talk about the series in general. Um, these seem to me like two of the most laid back guys you could ever feature on the show. Um, you're getting good sound bites, but I'm curious, how much do you have to pull teeth to, to get those? Or, or do you actually prefer these sort of personalities where at least, you know, everything is genuine versus other more performative boxers? 
Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I don't know if I prefer it one way or another, um, but these guys are, you know, I worked with Errol specifically, and this is the second time I've worked with him. Um, so there's some familiarity there, but, you know, what's nice is that you don't really, uh, there's not a lot of unpredictability, like with some guys, you know, you know, what you're getting with them and they're very approachable. And um, yeah, you know, they're, they're laid back, um, soft-spoken guys, but they've been doing this long enough, especially Errol, that they know what comes with this and they know what bites to give. And Errol especially is, is pretty good. You know, he's got, he's, he's a good interview. Um, you know, he's a low talker, but he's got a lot of gold in there for sure. And he knows how to sell a fight. Um, you mentioned you're embedded specifically in Errol's camp uh, and that you've done this now a couple of times. What can you tell us about him as a person that maybe we would not know from what we've seen about him before and even what we can see about him on the show? And is there anything about him that surprised you as you've gotten to get to know him? You know, what surprises me about Errol is I'm just so used to a certain way of dealing with, with boxers, whereas there's usually a bunch of people in between them you know, your communication with them passes through a lot of different filters. So that's what I'm used to. But with Errol, the first time I worked with him, I went through those filters out of habit. And it kind of came down to, I was talking through his best friend, Jordan. Um, and I think I was just, by week, I was asking him, hey, can I do this? Can I do that? And he was like, shit, Nick, why don't you just ask him? And I was like, oh, okay. And so <laughs> I, that's what I did. And it was like, okay, I'm, I'm talking to a human being. Like, I don't have to be mm. nervous about that. Like, Errol is uh, just a super laid back, normal guy, as you see. And there's there's not a lot that you're not seeing in the episodes that, you know, isn't him. He's a, he's a family man. Um, it's all about family with him. And in terms of in the gym, like, he's he's just a machine. Like, I think this time around, I got a full appreciation for, like, how good of a boxer he was because the mm. first time I worked with him you know I saw it but he's in the gym his workouts are so just like I don't want to say one note but he just cruises and so you can kind of zone out or whatever and then I watch him fight and I'm like damn this guy he never stops and then I kind of connected the two and this time around I, I gained a full appreciation for his stamina and mm. just how much he within that quiet you know, calmness about him, there's a ferociousness that if you see on the cameras on every angle that we have, you can see how much he's beating the crap out of the bag. Or you watch when he's running for three miles in the sweltering Texas sun that he hasn't breathed out of his mouth yet. Like those are the kind of things that I was right. like, I didn't, didn't pick up on this last time. And now I'm incredibly impressed. And, um, and it's just normal for him. Like it's not, like you guys were saying before, there's no lip service or like, you know, brashness necessarily. It's really like a matter of fact with him. Mm. And that goes for everything in his life. And he's, he's very modest. He doesn't, you know, have a ton of like crazy cars or a crazy house. And he's just, he's got that ranch. Um, he stays at an Airbnb for camp that's close to gym. And, and that's just, kind of his everyday life like it's wake up gym go pick up the kids come back eat sleep wake up he's a he's a machine as you guys can see in the ring like he kind of takes that approach to everyday life 
I want to ask you about uh, another person uh, then that you've been spending a, a lot of time with uh, in Errol's camp. Uh, Derek James, does he seem overworked to you? Is is he spreading himself too thin? I'm curious for your up close and personal take on on how much work this guy's taking on right now. He's a lot like Errol in the sense of like another guy who's just really steady, but he's doing so much that it's hard to even grasp how much it is because of the way he approaches it. Again, I've worked with him before as well with Charlo and and Spence last time, and obviously his um, you know his roster has expanded since then. But you know, we devoted a whole day to like following Derek James, like a day in the life. So I really got a full picture of what his day is, and it's super impressive because you know he wakes up at seven in the morning, he goes for a run, comes back, then he goes to the gym, and he works out from because when I he, he's not just training he's working out with them too like he's doing everything with them um and every fighter would tell you the same thing you know we talked to we talked to arrow we talked to frank we talked to joshua um and they all had the same answers that you know he works as hard as they do and he cares very much about that being um you know the image that he puts out and he's got to stay in shape for these guys i mean doing pads at arrow as you know he can go forever and then doing the same with Anthony Joshua, those are two completely different guys, the two power. And then Frank, who's got a lot of speed. So it's got to be very, it's got to adapt to a lot of different guys. And he handles it like super well. And not to mention, you know, the environment of the gym is not easy. I mean, I spent like 14 days in that gym with no AC um, and, you know, a lot of bugs and, a Texas heat that someone like me who lives in New York is just not used to, but that's the environment that he cultivated. It weeds out, you know, people from, there's no hanger arounds. There's no, there's not, nothing like that. It's just come here and you work and the fighters are going to work and he's going to work along with them, along with his brother, Maurice. And um, super impressive. He really handles it very well. And there was even one night where, you know, he worked out all day and then he got on a plane. He went to New York. He accepted his award for train of the year. He was back the next morning to train Errol. So wow. he is also a machine. Him and Errol are very, very similar. Um, it makes sense that there's such a strong connection between the two. So what is a day like for you guys when when you're in camp? You know, how are you just basically rolling all day uh, and how much time do you have like daily sit downs with with errol or you know or a lot of the bites that we see all taken from say like one session that you have at some point our days are a mix of routine and with a sprinkle of unpredictability and that depends on the fighter with errol we kind of we pretty much knew you know we would wake up in the morning we were at the gym by 9 a.m we're there for like four hours um go home, maybe do something later. You know, we try to, what we try to do is you do a gym session every day. That way, you know, you start the day with them and it's not just about getting footage. It's just about like being there. And that way I can talk to them and we can talk about things we're going to do later on. And, and with someone like Errol, it's very much like, um, you're not going to have things planned out in advance. You're just going to throw some things out there and, and see what he wants to do because I don't want to force anyone to do anything they don't want to do. That also is not going to be like themselves, and he's not going to do that either. But to answer your question about, you know, bites and all that, 
I kind of feel it out. Generally, you try to talk to them every day and get like a few questions in, but you got to feel it out. Like there were times where I didn't feel like it was in anyone's best interest to to ask him questions again. There's only so many things I can ask him uh, every day. Um, you try to hammer home like stuff about the fight, always looking towards the fight. But um, I guess it kind of depends on what happened at the gym that day in terms like if his kids are there, you ask about that, um, things like that. So, but for the most part, you know, we have that one or we have two sit down interviews that are like an hour long. And that's where most of the things, that's where most everything comes from. You, you've said uh, a couple of times you've dropped in the phrase every day. Is it literally every day that you're filming these guys or, or like for you personally, do you, do you have days off? Do you get to go home or, or once you're embedded in a camp, that's your life seven days a week until the fight is over. It's we do. If there's two episodes, we'll do 14 days. So seven days per episode. So, um, you know, with Errol, it was a little more condensed because he kind of said, Hey, by, by this date, when I'm at this weight, I'm going to shut down. So mm -hmm. I appreciated the fact that he, told us that. And so we decided to um, knock it all out pretty much within like a three week span. Okay. So it felt like I was there all month. And then you add in like the press tour in the middle of that. Um, but when we're there, it's, yeah, it's every day. And, you know, not every day, you know what you're going to get. You really don't. Um, you're kind of just searching for it, throwing things out there, hoping something happens. Um, and you try to plan things out. But like an example is on his off day when we were there, you know, I brought up paintball. He plays paintball a lot. Um, and I brought that up as something we would want to film. And he was like, okay. And there wasn't really a plan and it was a Sunday and we were kind of just sitting around and I hate that. I hate when I'm sitting around, like right. not doing anything. I'm just like, I'm a failure. Like, <laughs> <laughs> but, and then I got a text from him he sent me an address and he said, how far are you from this? And I was like 30 minutes. And he's like, okay, it's paintball. I'm seven minutes away. And I was like, oh, okay. And so, you know, lucky for me, I have, I pretty much uh, rock with the same crew, you know, two camera guys and an audio guy, uh, Justin, Mark as my camera people and um, Kyle as audio. They, uh, they're just super in it and they're really game. So in a situation like that, it's like a fire drill. Like you like you hit the siren, you go down the fire pole, you start putting everything in the car and maybe you drive. Luckily in Texas, like I think it's 70, 75 mile per hour on the, <laughs> on the interstate. So, and then you are just, a, you don't really know what you're walking into. You don't know the situation. So you, you're always adapting and it takes a really great crew and people that are, you know, not just there for, because it's their job, but people that truly want to like make something great and, that makes it so much easier on me to have, not only are they like my very good friends, we spend more time with each other than probably we do our own families. I feel bad because they all have like, you know, kids and wives I don't at the moment. So it's, um, I, I, I appreciate them very much. So it's um, that level of adaptability is necessary. And just to double back to something you were saying uh, in answer to Kieran's previous question about sort of getting to know the fighters. It's not always the cameras necessarily rolling, but sometimes just spending a little time with them. How, how important is that for just like 
especially a first time all access type of fighter to get them to kind of let their guard down and get comfortable around you. Is that, is that one of the big challenges when you sort of start out a new series with a new fighter? It's a challenge every time, but yeah, especially when it's the first time, but that's what I love about it is kind of molding that relationship because, you know, I'm not, I'm not there to, I'm not trying to like be their boy or anything like that. Like, but I'm, I want to have a good relationship with them and I want them to, I don't want them to see me and be like, oh shit, here's all access again. Like, I definitely <laughs> don't want that. Um, and my approach is to be pretty laid back. Um, but, but yeah, you know, I, I with Errol even um, in the beginning of each shoot, like I try to just sit down with them, no cameras, usually with my crew. And we just kind of talk about like, you know, how you feeling? Like, what are some things we can do? What do you want to show? Like, what, what are the things you want to talk about? because it's, it's your show at the end of the day. Um, and you should be able to be, you should be as involved in this process as anyone else. I don't want to come in here and again, making them do things that they don't normally do. That's not going to be like good content. And I think the beauty of all access is kind of the, you know, fly on the wall approach where you're kind of, you're, you think as a viewer that you're kind of seeing something you're not supposed to be seeing. And that requires us to be completely out of that scene. But, you know, even with Errol, like, I think the second day, I was just like, hey, can I come over tonight and we'll just like chat and like things we could do. And he was like, yeah. So, you know, we just went over and and there are certain people in camp like his cook, Elliot. Um, he was in Tank's camp. So you see a lot of the same people. And it is, as you guys know, boxing is a small community. So that helps, right. too. But um, we just sat down and we talked about ideas. I don't know how far we really got. And just like talking about anything which was cool and those are the those are the those are the things i appreciate a lot about this job is is getting that personal relationship because you know it's something that most people don't get to see um and so i uh i cherish that very much getting to know the fighters like that and having them you know trust me uh with that because it is trust at the end of the day so not just focusing on this one but on but on all the access um, series that you've done do any are there any couple of moments that leap out to you as uh oh my god I can't at the time you're like I can't believe a this is happening and b I'm here to actually get this on camera uh this is fantastic have you had any of those kind of uh kind of moments in terms of like uh, like a good thing or ah that's <laughs> either actually <laughs> good or bad it's all you know yeah, I mean, um, I've gotten so used to doing this and being around these guys that nothing really, I try to step back and like fully appreciate it sometimes. You know, there's some moments that are just, to me, it's just about like, am I getting a great scene right now? Something different. Whereas like, um, uh, you know, like with Caleb Plant, the first time I worked with him, we did this whole shoot with him riding his low rider down the Vegas strip um, at dusk. And it was beautiful. I remember I was just in the back of his car listening to music with him. And I was like, man, this is awesome. And like, we're at the side of the van breaking every traffic law there is trying to get him while the Bellagio is going up and, and we got it. And like, to us, that's everything. Like, that's so cool. That's guerrilla filmmaking at its finest. Um, you know, with tank, if you guys saw in his episode, like, getting him in a helicopter was um was a journey and it was one of those moments where 
I was like, I can't believe I'm doing this right now. Like, this is pretty <laughs> wild. And I didn't have to pay for any of this, like, out of my own pocket. But, and then I think, but to answer your question more specifically, with Tank, I remember I got there on a Monday and he was like, are you guys on the private jet? Because the press tour was the next day. We were like, uh, no, he's like, well, you are now. I'd never been on a private jet before. I mean, my crew has, because they've been working in this industry a long time, worked with Floyd and all that. But so like the next night, I'm just, I'm on his jet headed to New York. And I remember that was kind of a moment of like, wow, I can't believe I'm doing this right now. And uh, and then like you, we landed at like three in the morning, went and got sandwiches at a bodega in New York, came back to my apartment, slept for like four hours, got up, went to the press conference, left, got back on the private jet, went to LA to the press conference the next day. So it was just an absolute whirlwind. And, um, but the whole time I remember thinking like, this is, this is a crazy life. This is a crazy <laughs> life and I love it. So, so you were saying before how you hate uh, sort of sitting around doing nothing when those moments happen, uh, waiting for something to happen, uh, essentially. Um, have you ever found yourself, you know, you're getting toward the end of, of a week of filming someone and you're found yourself wondering if you have enough to craft a good episode, uh, like wondering, you know, what the editing team's going to really need to get creative to make this one work. Has that ever happened that you just felt like you just weren't getting enough out of someone? It pretty much happens all the time. Not that we're <laughs> not getting stuff, but it's just kind of like, that's how I'm, I just have a general anxiety about like what we got. Cause the reality is there's so many things that I've shot that I thought were great in the moment. And then you go back and you actually watch the footage and it's like, Oh, this wasn't, exactly how I thought it was and on the other flip side sometimes you get things that are like doesn't seem like much but the edit team is like this is fantastic like you know we in the last uh, all access of arrow they were like we just he's such a normal guy can you just get him doing something super mundane why does he just go to a gas station and get gas and I was like okay fine and then we like set it all up he drove like 50 feet from his house and it opened up you know episode two of the Ugas thing and edit team loved it and it was just him getting gas and like buying some stuff but um to 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 give them credit our edit team is like there's no one better like we have the best editors in the game and i'm very confident in saying that they've they've done great things with little content sometimes because you never know you never know what a box is going to give you what problems arise or whatever and you know there's been times where boxers haven't participated really at all mm -hmm. um and they've still made like a 30 minute show so you know josh glazer uh andrew romero jackie decker and tim nolan who are executive producers and editors like they are top of the game and they've been doing this a long time so they know exactly how to make an all access so while i'm always trying to give them the best stuff i can like it's always very reassuring to know that you know, it's in the hands of people that can can do magic. And has has it ever gone the other way in terms of the challenge they're facing where they're telling you, Nick, you gave us way too much good stuff. It's killing no. us to edit some of this out. Never. Has that that's never been an issue that uh, that something really good got left on the edit floor because there's just well, too much I, material. OK, well, that does happen. Okay. Um, I guess it's just not a matter of Nick, you gave us so much, you know, they, they always <laughs> they always want more uh okay. editors but 
Um, but I would too, if I was in their space, you always, you always want as much as possible. Um, but no, they're great. But, um, yeah, there's, there's always been stuff that's been left on the floor. I mean, even with this episode that's coming out on Saturday, there's some stuff in there that, you know, didn't make it that I, I would have liked to, but you know, it didn't fit in the narrative of the show. It would have been a left turn and things like that. So it doesn't always work. And the tough part about being a producer in that sense is sometimes you fight so hard for these scenes and, and to get people together. And, um, and also people get really excited to be on the show and it doesn't always happen. And I, I dread having to, to see them again next time and be like, I'm sorry, you know? And then, then the next time you come around, you start asking again and they're like, well, are you really going to use it this time? And, <laughs> and so that happens a lot, but it's just the nature of the beast. There's only so much you could fit in there, but you know, with digital and all that, I, I, we try to empty the tank on a lot of things and, you know, put, put clips out here or there, use it in features. So, you know, all access footage can serve so many different um, places. So fairly soon you'll be heading to Las Vegas for fight week. And I'm curious what, that is like for you is there something about anything in particular about fight week that you particularly enjoy do you dread it all <laughs> um and come saturday night are you able to actually kick back for a little bit and watch and enjoy the fight or are you still constantly just just looking at stuff to get on saturday night as well for a post fight show fight week is the best i mean it's also extremely stressful but it's stressful for everybody that's working on the event. Um, it's such a rush and you're just for months and especially for that week, you're just building and you're building and you're building to that moment. And then when it arrives, it's almost like, doesn't feel real a lot of the time. Um, it's almost like, and then it's over and it's like, well, shit, now what? Um, <laughs> it's just like done. Uh, but by week is, Awesome. And I actually, I'm going to Vegas uh, tomorrow um, to film with Errol, you know, at the Frank Martin fight. And then, you know, the idea is to grab some stuff now to lighten the load during fight week, because that's the hardest time to get with a fighter. And if I were a fighter, I wouldn't want to give anything to us either because they're cutting weight. They're at getting asked a million questions over the same ones over and over again. So, you know, the idea is to be with them and kind of, I like to, be their ally during fight week and not put pressure on them because at the end of the day, the epilogues are the fight is going to dictate how good the episode is. So, you know, ideally you try to get like one scene with each guy that's not fight week related. And then, you know, you ultimately, you have the fight. Um, but fight night is fun because it's like a, that's when we bring in a lot of people. We bring in all the big guns. We'll have like a 35 person crew like you know 12 to 15 cameras going during the fight um it's a lot of coordination a lot of people involved and you know you're working with the broadcast team too um because it's that it's their show at the end of the day so it's a it's a rush and you know during the fight i it kind of goes back and forth a lot of time you're looking for celebrities you're trying to point people out and and talk and you know, put a mic on over here to try to get some sound from Michael B. Jordan or Mark Wahlberg. And, but when the fight's going on, it's, you're kind of like everyone's set and you kind of have to live with it at that point. Um, it's, it's, it's hard to like, at, after a fight, usually my, 
the text chain catches up with itself because it's there's so many things happening. It's like you can't even get text. But so usually I'll stand in the back and I'll just watch the fight and um, I get pretty nervous because I think you know any producer would tell you it's tough to if your guy loses. You know that's a completely different environment than going into the, the winning locker room. Is I don't want to say easy, but it's that's easy. I mean, you walk in there, everyone's excited. They're they're happy to talk about it. Um, it's a party. But with the losing locker room, which I've actually not had to do yet, um, mm. the only fighter that I worked with who lost was Caleb, and he unfortunately had to go to the hospital. But um, you know, but the losing locker room is really where. I, I don't, I hate to use the word best content, but like the most powerful content comes from, you know, you think back to Spence Ugas and Ugas in the locker room with his eye and he's crying and his solace is buttoning up a shirt saying that like, he doesn't have to be ashamed of his face. You know, you should be proud of it. And like, that's the most powerful stuff. That's what opened the episode. But, you know, it's a delicate situation. It really is because, I mean, these guys are truly putting their life on the line and something like that like Ugas, for example, like he just went through a traumatic event and he's a absolute warrior. And I have so much respect for these guys that it's just hard. And this goes for all of all access. Like, you know, we have a show to do, but like end of the day, like they're fighting and like they're preparing for a fight and there's nothing that I can do to relate to that. And so that I always make sure above all else that they know that that respect level is there, that, you know, you're, you're preparing for the biggest moment of your life. And we just want to be here to make it, you know, as great as possible. And so you can reflect on it. And, um, but epilogues, they're the best. Those are the ones I look back on and like, you could relive that so many times. And it's also where we win our Emmys mostly. So that's what we, that's why we really bring out the big guns. <laughs> well, that was great. Thanks. And that's a lesson I think for anybody who, wants to lay a bet on uh, on any of the fights is try to figure out which fighter Nick Manning has been embedded with because the chances are that guy's going to win. <laughs> <laughs> so far, yes. And uh, I, I don't have a... I never make predictions. I really don't know what's going to happen. But, you know, I always find myself, like, truly, like, believing in the fighter that I'm with because... Mm. And the same would be said on the other side of things, like in this camp, Sam Shublin and the other camp... Um, you know, he's, I'm sure he feels the same way about Terrence, you know, you watch these guys work and prepare and it's so impressive that you can't help, but not only be attached from a, just like emotional perspective, you want them to win, you know, their families, you know, but you also are just usually I'm so convinced that they're going to win just mm. because I, I know their mental and their physical capabilities and I've seen it pushed to that limit. And so I don't know what's going to happen, but I know that I believe in Arrow for sure. Nick, this has been great. And I think the way you've talked about how you go about the work on All Access and how the team works shows exactly why it's such a successful franchise, because it shows that you're really like not just embedded with these guys, but but really sort of on their side and, and to try to tell their story. So that's that's fantastic. I've really we both really appreciated you taking some time to talk to us today because yeah. uh, it's, a, it's a rough time for you, for sure. Yeah, I mean, I'll just say that, you know, I love this job so much. I love this series and it's an honor to to, you know, carry the torch from years of, you know, years of this. And I have to, I have to shout out, you know, Steven Espinoza and David Dinkins for their commitment to, 
to continuing this um, and Al Heyman too, for continuing this, um, this series where, and the commitment to maintaining the integrity that it has and um, committing the resources to that. Um, we get the best, uh, we get the best crew, best audio people, best PAs, best cameras, um, and we get the best editors. So I'm very lucky. You've learned That's well awesome. from the fighters that you've been embedded with. Don't forget <laughs> to thank Al Heyman. You Al made Heyman, sure to get him in there. <laughs> you know, when we were up for an Emmy in May, I was supposed to make the speech. And as a joke, I was going to thank Al Heyman. Uh, half joke, I was going to thank Al Heyman before anyone else. <laughs> right. Only about like 3% of the people in that room would have gotten it, but it totally would have been worth it. So <laughs> I'm still going to keep that one in my back pocket. Yeah. Well, on, on a boxing podcast, we appreciate the the making sure to thank Al Heyman. We all, we all get the, right. the – you seem to mean it genuinely, but it also works as an right. inside joke. Absolutely. Exactly. Absolutely. Exactly. Hey, Nick, thank you very much, man. Really, really appreciate your time. Thank you, guys. It was awesome. Our thanks again to Nick. Great insights there. I love going behind the scenes on that sort of stuff. And I totally get being convinced that whichever fighter you're embedded with is going to win. Yeah. <laughs> you and I know how yeah. that works. Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, all this talk of Spence Crawford All Access is a perfect segue to your top five challenge for next week, okay. Karen. I was thinking I, I definitely wanted to give you something for the Monday Monday of fight week that was related to this fight. So I have come up with something, and it is the most straightforward possible list connected to Spence Crawford. This fight will determine who is the true welterweight champ and the number one welterweight in the world right now. But who, I ask you, Kieran, is the number one welterweight champ of all time? And who are his next four runners-up? Uh, simple challenge. Rank the top five welterweight champs of all time. Uh, the list, of course, should be based solely on what they did at welterweight. Uh, so, ah, okay. you know, for example, a, a guy I assume won't make your list, Roberto Duran. He's an all-time great fighter gotcha. who had a decent little run at 147, but you would just be looking at that welterweight resume for this, and I assume Duran's won't stack up well enough to get him into the top five. But it's your list. Ah. I don't want to influence it. So I'll shut up now, but uh, there, there is your assignment for the Fight Week Monday pod. And actual real champions, right? Not titleists. I think, you know, I think I'm okay with if they held a, I mean, if they were just a title, if they never quite unified all the titles, if they came along during the multi-belt era, I kind of, it gets a little hazy on which guys were lineal champs and which weren't in some of the more recent eras. So you know, we'll, there will be a lot of guys who just held a title and they're go, going nowhere close to the top five, you know, that, right. but um, I think it's a, as long as they held at least a belt at welterweight, they qualify for consideration okay. here, I'd say. OK. All right. And <clears throat> final clarification. Yes. Um, not necessarily what they achieved as champions, but if they achieved a lot at welterweight and for whatever reason, were champions only for a little bit, that counts. But extra yeah. weight to the great welterweight reign, I assume. Yeah, I, I suppose so. But yeah, it's certainly what they did in some non-title fights at welterweight if, should should count. Uh, yeah, that that's that's fine. That you know, if somebody prior to their championship reign had some spectacular win, that's not to be ignored. All right. Very well. That's a good one. I like okay. that. Actually, I can't believe we haven't done that. Right. Actually, but, uh... <laughs> we've done it. We've done a few divisions, uh, top five, yeah. this or that, but haven't done welterweights. This is the time to do it. 
All right, that sounds perfect. Okay, and that will do it for this episode of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. We will be back next Monday with the first of many Spence Crawford Fight Week podcasts featuring our comprehensive preview of the pay-per-view card as well as a preview of the Oya Inoue Stephen Fulton fight. Uh, plus, I will, of course, be counting down the top five welterweight champs of all time. Uh, until then, thanks as always for listening. Be safe, be kind, and be well. <laughs> <laughs>